This is a second-line funeral for New Orleans jazz and gospel singer Juanita Brooks. This YouTube video of it has more than a million views. In this second line, a brass band is playing while funeral-goers slowly dance and twirl colorful parasols. Today on With Good Reason, we're talking about the many ways we honor the dead, from funerals to gravestones to the memorials we make for people online. We begin in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, where gravesites sometimes welcome visitors with flags, monogrammed doormats, and bird feeders. Allison Bell studies burial practices, and she says the way people express themselves in cemeteries started to change in the 1980s. She teaches anthropology at Washington and Lee University and is a former fellow at Virginia Humanities. Allison, I'm so interested in hearing what you started to see change in the way we memorialized our dead. Absolutely. There have been phenomenal changes starting, I would say, in the 1980s. The first things I started to notice were little references to hobbies, Someone will put a fishing pole on their marker or maybe a rolling pin. Not much later, you start to see people uh, etching in pictures of their little ranch homes, of their gas stations, of their country stores. How did we start out centuries ago marking granite and marble as gravestones? Right. The very earliest grave markers in our area tend to be coffin-shaped slabs that laid on the ground. And they often say things like, here lies buried the body of so-and-so who departed this life in, you know, the 84th year of his age. And the coffin was meant to remind passers-by of their own eventual death, that they needed to look on the coffin and remember that life would be coming to an end so that they could consider the ways that they wanted to live so that they could end up in the right place after death. Remember me as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you shall be. Prepare for death and follow me. There is a sense that the dead were responsible to advise the living and that the living were responsible to remember the dead or even to pray for their souls. As you went to explore graveyard after graveyard, did sometimes people alert you to specially moving or extraordinary memorials? Absolutely. Um, one thing I found is that people are, are often so proud of their memorials. People were eager to point out to me um, the first person who had a, um, a train carved on his grave marker. Or there was one man who took me to a grave marker and showed me that uh, there was a tractor carved on it. And uh, this was from a farmer who had, had passed on in the 90s. He was, he was an elderly man at the time. But his tractor is still shown at community events, at county fairs. They still have Granddaddy's tractor. Oh, that is wonderful. <laughs> so has also the technology helped us so that instead of stone carvers who are chiseling expert dates and names into gravestones, we have new technology that lets us express a lot. Absolutely. Technology has facilitated these more diverse expressions a much wider range of images, you know, a guy with his water truck and his emu, a woman with her rock garden, lots of people with their Harleys. Harley, I think, is the most popular image uh, I, I've seen. Um, but people will have the Nike swoosh on their markers. Technology makes it easier and less expensive, but it doesn't explain everything. 
because there was incredible um, expertise in decades and centuries past, and yet nobody thought it was okay to, you know, put their you know, buggy on their marker or their uh, their dog on their marker. There's also a way in which culture has changed, not just technology, but what's considered okay is definitely different now than ever has been in American history. Is part of it that people are less closely tied to church? It's interesting because that was one of my first ideas is that people would say, oh, this is about so-called secularization, that people are not religious as they used to be. But what I've found is that there's a, a combination of religious faith expressions and you know, um, hobbies. So for example, you'll see um, a Star of David and a baseball on one marker in Roanoke, the city of Roanoke, for example, or, or a football and a cross. And so I don't think that there's any inconsistency in most people's minds between putting a, a bulldozer on your grave marker and also being a very religious person. So grave markers, I think, are part of a larger cultural movement right now to think about how we can encapsulate ourselves briefly for the public. So we have tattoos, we have decals on our cars or bumper stickers or Twitter accounts, Facebook. We have to have a profile picture, right? And we have to have a short description on Twitter. So we're, we are becoming accustomed to looking to symbols or short um, sentences or phrases to say, here's who I am. Um, I think that you see more of it in rural areas than urban areas. It's more pronounced, I would say, in um, sort of Protestant, um, the, the Methodist, Baptist, maybe. But even in, in veteran cemeteries, there's one, a new one in southwestern Virginia, where Rose M. Jones served in World War II. She was born in 24 and died in 2012, and her epitaph is Queenie, Tough Old Bird. And then next, not far from her, is John Henry, who served in Korea in the Army. He was born in 34, died in 2016, and his epitaph is the grasshopper, not the ant. So normally, right, with that fable, we're supposed to work hard like the ants, but they remember him as the grasshopper, as somebody who had a good time <laughs> and played, <laughs> played through the summer. Yeah. <laughs> a very gentle form of expression. <laughs> Um, what about how people have expressed themselves through their religions? Yes, there is a lot of religious diversity in the, this part of Virginia. There are Quakers, there are old Order Mennonites who still use buggies, new Order Mennonites who drive cars but are supposed to have black bumpers rather than shiny chrome ones. There's Jewish congregations. Um, there are some Muslims buried here. And one thing that's interesting is that their grave markers often say where they were born in Egypt, for example. And that they came here as, as physicians. So many of them note on the grave markers the way that they serve their communities. And very, very frequently they have American flags on them to make the statement, I would think, that we are um, patriotic Americans. There's another um, cemetery, Temple Emanuel Cemetery in Roanoke, which is associated with the, um, the Jewish temple there. And this is the grave of Max Trompeter. And he was born in 1920, died in 1996. He was a baker. On the back of his marker, there's a Star of David, and it says, in loving memory of his family members who perished in the Holocaust. It lists the names of his father, his stepmother, his grandfather, his grandmother, and then 
let's see, Moshi, Rivka, Rosa, Abraham, Netta. There are Samuel, I think, nine brothers and sisters who died during the Holocaust. And their bodies are obviously not in Virginia, but that's what his last act was, was to raise this memorial to them over his own grave. So moving. It is. What also have people done nowadays with loved ones who died through suicide? I think that's one of the most interesting things that I've seen and how that's changing right now because there tends to be right now a much greater willingness to not hide from suicide, but even to acknowledge it. Um, There's one young man, Kyle Stellenberg, born in 1988, and he died by his own hand in 2013. And on the front of his grave marker is um, a laser-etched image of Kyle himself in a Virginia Tech hat and a wolf that's howling into the night. And then on the back of his stone, it says... When things get as bad as they're going to, just read this and remember that the thing I want most is for you and our family to become stronger and closer. Enjoy life and its beauty and cherish the things people take for granted so often. I just hope I'm remembered as being brave, that taking my own life was a sacrifice I had to make to salvage my heart, which is my family. I know I'll be around you all. I love you. Oh, my gosh. That was part of his suicide note that his family inscribed on his grave marker. He's so loved. Absolutely. Where do you think right now we are heading when it comes to trends for acknowledging the deaths of our loved ones? What are you beginning to see? I increasingly see the sense that they're really not gone, that they're really just here. One of my students said, uh, it's like people are starting to think of dead, their dead loved ones as friends who are out of cell phone range, right? That they're they're here. They're they're just other other people have described it as you know my son is just on the other side of a veil, and so I'll bring him a turkey leg at Christmas and bring it to him at the graveyard. There is another mother, a mother who told me that um, on her son's birthday she always takes a cake to the workers at the cemetery because those are the people who are spending the day with with him the whole day with him. So she imagines him as living at the cemetery. She describes taking care of his grave as the way a mother takes care of her son's room and that he's 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 there in a way. Of course, we lose so many people and their Facebook pages remain up forever. And annually, we're reminded of birthdays of people who've died. It, it's amazing the ways that people are using social media to keep in touch with the dead. It's a little bit of an older tradition because for many years, um, newspapers in Virginia and beyond would print uh, notices to the dead. So a family could take out a little ad remembering Papa on Father's Day, you know, or remembering uh, Brianna, you're celebrating your seventh birthday in heaven. So even even when people died as children before they could learn to read, there was still a posting in the newspaper of a, a letter to her from the family. And certainly social media has made that much easier. Allison, I am so moved and interested in your work. This will all be part of a book that should be coming out in the spring. Do you have a title? It's called, right now, The Vital Dead. The vital dead, because the dead are thought of as being vital, that they're still somehow alive in a way. Um, but they're also vital to us in the present. The dead are the way we decide who we are. These are our roots. These are our values. You know, this is this is who, uh, how we're connected to other generations. 
Allison Bell teaches anthropology at Washington and Lee University. She's a former fellow at Virginia Humanities. Coming up next, some modern burial trends that will surprise you. On the list of big life expenses, you might find college, a house, maybe a wedding. You might also find a funeral. In the last several decades, the cost of funerals has risen nearly twice as fast as all other consumer goods. And increasingly, with that big price tag, comes a lot of bells and whistles. Virginia Beard and Bill Berger are professors at Longwood University. They're studying the funeral industry. Bill, you and Virginia first started studying funeral homes because of something you saw that stunned you. Actually, my wife saw it. My wife saw a sign that said drive-by viewing. I had never heard of drive-by viewing. I asked Virginia. Her husband, uh, I knew, was a funeral director. And Virginia said she'd find out. Well, essentially what it is is they have a viewing window that's set up and your car can just come around almost like it's a drive through at a fast food restaurant. And you can go and you can view the body that way rather than getting out and going into the funeral home. And why would you have that? Well, we didn't know. And the best thing that we could come up with is that the population's getting older. It's hard for people to get out of the car, to get into the building, but they still want to go and pay their respects. So the two of you decided to look into, well, what what are the other ways the funeral industry has changed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, we would, honestly, it started, we would just sit in my office and have conversations over and over again. Like there was an article that um, Bill brought to me from the New York Times of this woman in New Orleans who was posed with a cigarette and a bush beer with a deck of playing cards. And we thought, you know what? We've been just sitting here talking about this for months. There's an article in this somewhere. So the real research started then. Yes. And when you say there was a woman posed, you're saying the corpse was yes. posed. Yes. And, and she had wanted this. She had wanted that. She said that was the way that all her friends would, would remember her. She had a bush beer in front of her, an unlit cigarette, a deck of cards, and a cowboy hat. Wow. Is that the only instance of that you've ever heard of? No, actually, this appears to be something very popular, particularly in Puerto Rico. Um, There was an ambulance driver who was posed in Puerto Rico as well as a a boxer who was posed inside of a boxing ring. I don't think it's something that we're going to see a significant number of people doing, but it's out there and it's it's being done. And one fellow was posed sitting on his Harley. He was going to be buried on the Harley in the ground. The Harley and he were going together. Yeah, he was upright, and he was being buried more vertically than horizontally. Horizontally. So I'm sure this is not commonplace, but it's part of a trend the two of you have picked up on about how much the funeral industry, in terms of the actual ceremony, has changed. What has led to this change in how we stage funerals? we ask the same question, what is happening? What is going on? And it seems like there's sort of two forces that are really driving what's happening. One is people. People want change. They are no longer happy paying exorbitant prices. So the traditional funeral is, for many people, the third largest expense in their life, coming in at average about $12,000. And then um, the funeral home industry is picking up on the fact that people are shifting away more from the traditional funeral and more towards cremations, which was a trend that started in the 1980s. And that is partially because cremation is cheaper than a casket? Yeah, absolutely, on average. And it varies widely depending on where you are, but you could say the average cost of a direct cremation, which is no service, no nothing, just the cremation, somewhere between $1,200 to $2,500. So how does a funeral home sort of embrace cremation? Are there 
Are there options? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can go from, from a simple cremation or a direct cremation, which is basically you go from uh, wherever you die to the, the crematorium. And that, as Virginia says, is really cheap. All the way up to you can have a service. You can have viewing. What do you do with the ashes? You know, they can be put in uh, uh, necklaces. You can be put in uh, a coral reef. You can be sent into the sky on the 4th of July in a fireworks. What else? Oh, they... Oh, paint? The, yeah, some of the more interesting ones where you could have your ashes mixed into paint and you could be painted by an artist into some type of landscape or anything that you really enjoyed that could be hung in your family's home. You could be mixed into fiberglass and be put into the bumper of a car that you loved or onto oh, the back of a motorcycle. <laughs> um, Bill mentioned the coral reef. You could have an urn. Urns used to just kind of be almost like a Grecian urn. They weren't really anything fabulous, but now you can have your favorite sports team, a can of beer that that's made into an urn. You yep. can have, I mean, anything that is personalized is now available out there. And somebody's going to make a lot of money off that too. Well, remember, this is a business. I just looked at the cost of a, of a hearse today. Uh, 2008 hearse is $80,000. That's just a hearse. So funeral homes have a big... Uh, capital list that they have to somehow make up. And because of the funeral rules, you can now get your casket from from wherever you want. That used to be the biggest moneymaker for the funeral industry. But now you can get, I was looking today, I found uh, some for $250 online. You can also get them on eBay, Costco, Amazon, Walmart. They all carry caskets. I know a distinguished man of stature in a local community who had his sons make the casket for the son who had died. Sure, and that's a, another trend as well. Not so much everyone doing it from scratch themselves, because a lot of fo folks just don't have the skill level to be able to do that. But there's a whole DIY movement, and there's you can buy kits to build your own casket. But while you're waiting to use that casket, it can be your coffee table, and then it becomes reassembled. Or it can be a bookshelf, and it can become reassembled into your coffin. So it's almost like the Ikea of... Of coffins. I'm trying to think how I feel about that. I know. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like, do you want your coffin sitting there with your coffee on it in the mornings <laughs> until your day comes, yeah, right? Yeah. And going back to the cremation, how popular are they now compared to a few decades ago? If the American Cremation Society estimates that this year there'll be over 50% of all bodies will be disposed of using cremation. You're still seeing many traditional funerals, but there's a caveat to that. The boomers, they don't want to have their funeral in a church. They want it to be about who they were as a person. So you're starting to see a lot more funerals that are taking place maybe at home again, where they were comfortable, or their funerals taking place in a park for a memorial service, or um, instead of having hymns spoken, poems are being read, and instead of having church music played, Bob Dylan is going to be played. We read one article that compared the funeral director to the new wedding planner. You can go on a lot of funeral home websites now, and they have like a personalization, build your own funeral. Bill and I did that one day, creepy as it sounds. Um, we built our own funeral. <laughs> Can I hear what your funeral would be under yeah, this scenario? The the cost was a little bit high. If yeah, we we'd have to roll it back a little bit. Yeah, we were over <laughs> we were over twenty thousand. I mean, we had a sit down dinner, a band, photographer, photographer, 
fully stocked bar, and we stopped at about 20,000. We said we could probably go higher if we wanted to. So there are two aspects of that trend, too. One is to really honor the person and send them out in a more personal way. The other is let people who loved this individual have a great time. I, I agree with you. It's part of that, but it's also part of this idea of individuality, that I want to plan it the way that I want to go. Uh, that, you know, the, the funeral director is not going to be planning this. I'm going to be planning it. Have you, in the course of this research, had a thought flash through your head about some element that's personal to you that you might want at your funeral, a particular song that pops into your head while you're driving? Another one bites the dust? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> that's good. I can't see Black Sabbath doing a whole heck of a lot that some of my relatives would like at a funeral. But it's for you, Bill. I know, but they still have to be there. Bill Berger is a professor of sociology at Longwood University. Virginia Beard is a professor of criminal justice at Longwood. After the Civil War, Black-owned funeral businesses proliferated. Beverly Bunch Lyons is a professor of history at Virginia Tech. She says the rise stemmed from the desire of African Americans to have their loved ones buried with care and dignity by black undertakers. Beverly, you write about an early memory of your own grandmother's funeral. Tell me what stayed with you from that. I think what stayed with me the most were the strangers that were attending the funeral. We have a very large family, so I noticed that there were these people who were being bossy from from my five-year-old perspective. They were telling everybody what to do, where to go. They were all dressed the same. They wore black suits with black ties and white shirts. They were very professional, very stoic. And so in my mind, I was trying to figure out exactly who were these people and why were they at my grandmother's funeral. What do you think actually gave rise to the African-American-owned funeral industry to begin with? It was born out of sheer necessity. Booker T. Washington spoke about the African-American funeral industry, and according to Washington, the funeral industry at the turn of the 20th century was a really good business for African-Americans to go into because there was very little competition from white funeral home directors. He noticed that on one particular occasion, he saw where black bodies were basically being dumped into a hole. And as a result of that, in the early part of the 20th century, we began to see more and more African-Americans work towards owning their own funeral businesses so that they could bury family members and community members in a way that was dignified and respectful. We know that even today, uh, much like church, funeral businesses are still pretty segregated, that overwhelmingly African-Americans will still rely on African-American funeral directors to bury their dead. So even though a lot has changed, there's still some things that sort of remain the same. What sort of roles did black funeral directors play in African-American communities outside of the industry? They were part of a growing middle class. 
They were connected to the church. They knew about the the policies that affected the community. They knew about the policies that impacted their businesses. So many of them became involved in politics as a way to not only have a say in what was happening in their business, but also as a way of having a say in what was happening in the community. So people looked to the funeral director as a leader within the community because they had access to information that sometimes the rest of the community may not have had access to. They knew when things like the Great Depression hit, that it was going to be difficult for people to be able to pay for funerals. And so they oftentimes would set up payment plans. They would use bartering. They used a variety of strategies to work with people within the community. I can recall one person that I interviewed um, who owns a funeral home in South Carolina said that some of her customers would pay with pigs, cows, chickens, whatever they had so that they could put their loved ones to rest in a way that was befitting the loved one. Just how segregated were were the clients of funeral homes during the early 19th century? Would whites only go to white-owned funeral homes and African Americans, conversely, to black-owned funeral homes? Primarily, that that was the case. You, you could not say that segregation was uh, something that African-American funeral home owners didn't necessarily appreciate because what that meant was that they were able to corner that segment of the market and not have competition from white funeral home owners. So in some ways, um, it was beneficial to them. Um, and I think even today, that's still pretty much the case that overwhelmingly African-American funeral home owners still overwhelmingly bury African-American clients. What about nowadays? Are independent African-American funeral homes thriving? Some of them are thriving, but increasingly large corporations are making it difficult for these businesses to thrive. One of the problems that some of them face is not having a person to leave the business to. They have children uh, or grandchildren that aren't particularly interested in the business. Then many of those businesses may feel compelled to go ahead and sell out. We come full circle. Do you think when you were young and five and you saw those strange men who looked so well-dressed and stoic and dignified that they are still part of the funeral industry in the African-American community now? They are very much a part of the funeral industry today. There is certainly a an age, uh, I, perhaps an age gap, in terms of what is desired from a funeral with older members of communities, I think oftentimes they want that traditional type of funeral. They want to see the funeral directors wearing black. They want to hear Amazing Grace being sung at their funeral. Younger people, on the other hand, are wanting things that are a little bit different. They're wanting more themed-based funerals. They're wanting to uh, have that that favorite song, that favorite pop culture song or hip-hop song. They're wanting those kinds of things at funerals. Certainly, I'm sure that particularly among the older uh, funeral directors, some of them may not be particularly happy with the direction that some of these events, some of these funerals have taken. But nonetheless, if they're trying to meet a a specific need of their community, of their clientele, then they will go along with that uh, just for the purpose of um, making sure that they remain viable in the community. Well, Beverly Bunch Lyons, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Beverly Bunch Lyons is a professor of history at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. 
The following is an interview we did a number of years ago that prompted a lot of listener interest. In 1976, Bruce Grayson was a young psychiatrist at the University of Virginia. A resident there, Raymond Moody, showed him a stack of letters from people telling about their near-death experiences. Dr. Grayson decided to try to figure out the science behind their remarkable death stories. And now, over 40 years later, he's still at it. Apparently, millions of Americans have had near-death experiences. Bruce Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. He's co-author of Irreducible Mind and co-editor of the Handbook of Near-Death Experiences. His research has led him to talk to people who have had near-death experiences and discovered startling consistencies in their accounts. Although he is a scientist and a skeptic, he says his outlook has been changed by the stories he's heard. Bruce, what is the near-death experience? Is it almost always the same set of circumstances that people report? Well, there are some uh, consistencies in the near-death experience, but there's also a lot of individual variation. The bottom line is that's a very profound experience that people have when they are close to death, in which they feel they've sort of transcended the usual boundaries of space and time. They may feel like they've left their bodies. They may talk about encountering some deity. They may talk about having their life pass before their eyes, encountering deceased loved ones. And at some point, either coming to a point where they decide to return to life or being sent back against their will. How long do they think of their near-death experiences having been? That's a very interesting question because I know people who have had a very elaborate near-death experience when they've actually been unconscious only for a matter of a couple of seconds. And if you ask them about time in the near-death experience, or NDE, they say that it was timeless. There was no sense of time when they were in the near-death experience. It's as if everything was happening all at once and everything lasted forever. It does make it sound more like a dream and therefore a kind of collection of, well, what do we think dreams are? Hmm. That's an excellent question. We don't really know what dreams are. The way near-death experiences differ from dreams is first in their consistency from one person to another, and probably more importantly, in the effect they have on people. Most of us don't change our lives because of a dream. In fact, most of us can't remember a dream we had 20 years ago. And yet, near-death experiencers say that they are never the same after an NDE. Their attitudes, their beliefs, their values, their behavior are profoundly transformed. And this transformation is maintained over decades. How do you know that? Give me examples of experiences you've had with certain individuals you've kept up with. I've been doing this work since 1975, so I've had about 30 years' experience with some of these folks. They typically say they feel more altruistic, more spiritual, more loving, less competitive, less concerned with material possessions, with personal power, prestige. Um, and in many cases, that requires them to change their careers. I've talked to several people who were in fairly cutthroat businesses that couldn't go back to that. They said that going back to a situation where you gain at someone else's expense doesn't make sense to them anymore because we're all in this together. Do these people fear death or do they lose their fear of death? They almost universally say they've lost their fear of death entirely, and that's for a variety of reasons. And one of them is that they now identify with something larger than this individual body, which we know is going to die. 
but they feel they're part of something greater than themselves. They feel that they're all part of this universal, whatever you want to call it, nature, the Godhead. And in that context, getting ahead at the expense of someone else um, isn't getting you anywhere because we're all going to the same place. We're all part of the same thing. Is there any negative consequence for people who have had a near-death experience? There are negative consequences. Um, Imagine your spouse in the flash of an eye having a total personality transformation, changing his or her beliefs, values, what they think is important in life. You haven't made the same transformation. So we see people's careers, people's relationships breaking up. Now, in some cases, people were very spiritual and altruistic before the NDE, and they don't change very much. But I've seen lots of cases where people were transformed, and they couldn't go back to the same life situation, the same marriage, the same career, and it really disrupts their lives. Are there other dimensions to having gone through the near-death experience about how you approach living your life? Um, If you are no longer afraid of dying, then paradoxically you become no longer afraid of living to the fullest, and you tend to take risks you wouldn't have taken before. Um, As physicians, our patients who have had a near-death experience become harder to manage medically because they no longer are concerned with prolonging their lives. So if one of your patients has a heart attack, they usually become more protective of their lives. Whereas if you tell a near-death experiencer, you need to stop smoking, they'll say, well, I enjoy smoking. (laughs) And they're not afraid of losing their lives. So they're less inclined necessarily to take the doctor's advice and prolong their lives. What percentage of people have a negative experience in this close encounter with death? That's a fascinating question because what it comes down to is we really have no way of telling. It used to be very hard to get people to talk about near-death experiences at all back in the late 70s and early 80s because there was such a stigma attached to having a bizarre experience. But now in the 21st century, there's been so much publicity about these near-death experiences that people aren't afraid of talking about them but they are still afraid about talking about the negative experiences. People who have a hellish experience or just a frightening one are less inclined to talk about it than people who have the typical blissful experience we all hear about. We actually sought out unpleasant experiences. We put advertisements, for example, in in newspapers and magazines that people are likely to read. (laughs) Wait, Um, I have to picture this. (laughs) How would you word an appeal for somebody to report a negative near-death experience. Well, there's actually an organization called the International Association for Near-Death Studies that has a a newsletter, and there are other spiritually-oriented organizations with larger memberships that are willing to put in uh, requests for accounts for us. And one of the things that surprised us is that the after-effects of the unpleasant experiences were far milder than the pleasant ones. So what did you find consistently for the 50 or so that you talked to with the unpleasant experience? Well, actually, there were different types of unpleasant experience. The most common type sounds just like a typical pleasant NDE, but the people experience it in a very terrifying way. For example, they may talk about being ripped out of their body and hurtled down a tunnel at lightning speed, these blinding, flashing lights. They're fighting against the experience, trying to stay in control, and at some point, they get exhausted they let go. And as soon as they let go, it becomes a blissful experience. It's so tempting to rationalize these fascinating experiences as figments of people's imagination. What do you, what do you say about that? Well, I, I can't dismiss it entirely. You know, I'm essentially a skeptic. I tend not to take anything on faith. So I look at these experiences, and I try to 
sort out what is consistent among the different experiences, what's unique about this one or that one. And it's actually in the effects on the individual that I see the greatest meaning of these experiences. I'm very familiar as a psychiatrist with hallucinations, with delusions, with dreams, with figments of the imagination. And I know that they don't have the type of profound after-effects that near-death experiences do. Can you give me some specific cases so that we start to get a feel for what you're hearing and seeing and working with? Okay, well, there's one fellow that I interviewed who was in his early 50s when he had a sudden cardiac arrest. They did emergency coronary bypass on him that day. And in that procedure, he claimed to have left his body and watched what was going on in the operating room. And he was able to report some very unusual things. For example, he reported that the cardiac surgeon, whom he had never met, was flapping his arms like a chicken. And I didn't know what to make of that. I I thought, this is clearly, this fellow is delirious. And then he wanted to describe meeting his deceased mother, a deceased brother-in-law who sent him back against his will, told him it was not his time. Uh, He came back angry at his brother-in-law for sending him back, but convinced that this was a blissful experience and this is what awaited him when he died. I had a chance to talk with his cardiac surgeon, and I told him what this patient had said. And the surgeon turned very red and said, who told you about that? I said, well, Al told me about it, you know. And what actually happened was the surgeon had let his resident physician start the operation, and he had come into the operating room, and he hadn't scrubbed in yet. His hands were not yet sterile, and he didn't want to risk contaminating the sterile field. So he placed his hands where he knew they wouldn't touch anything, namely on his chest, firmly on his chest, and then was pointing out with his elbows where the resident surgeon should make another incision or pull back (laughs) on the retractor. So he was, in fact, flapping his elbows around as if trying to fly. I don't know how you can explain away. I don't know how this patient who was quite unconscious could possibly have have known about this. Well, another fellow I I had interviewed was actually a a bag man for the mafia. This is when I lived in another part of the country where that's more common. And he was actually shot in the chest on the street and left for dead and ended up recovering. Um, He again had a, a blissful experience, saw some deceased relatives, saw what he thought was Jesus, and was told that he had more work to do and was sent back against his will again. And when he came back, he could not go back to the same lifestyle. I also had a chance to interview his ex-girlfriend, who was thoroughly disgusted with his changes, uh, as she put it to me. Uh, Rocky doesn't care about things of substance anymore, meaning money and jewelry and and cars. (laughs) And now, it's about 10 years later, um, Rocky makes his, his living counseling delinquent boys, which is quite a change from what he used to do. You're listening to With Good Reason. I'm speaking with Dr. Bruce Grayson of the University of Virginia, an expert on near-death experiences. What are you looking at now to discover a scientific basis for all this? Well, there are a number of hypotheses that have been put forward to try to explain the near-death experience. The most uh, common one is that it's due to a lack of oxygen to the brain. Because no matter how you come close to death, the final common event is not getting oxygen to the brain. But in fact, we know pretty much what happens when you don't get oxygen to the brain, and it doesn't sound at all like a near-death experience. People usually get very frightened, very agitated, they get belligerent, and that's very much unlike the typical calm, pleasant, consistent vision of a near-death experience. Another popular hypothesis was this is due to drugs given to people as they approach death. 
And again, a number of studies done in this country and in India now have shown that the more drugs people are given as they approach death, the fewer near-death experiences they report. There have been a number of reports linking uh, particularly out-of-body experiences where people feel they've left the physical body with a certain portion of the right temporal lobe. And this actually goes back to the 1950s when the Montreal neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield found that there was one part of the right temporal lobe where if we stimulated that part of the brain, people would say things like, it feels as if I am leaving my body. Now, they weren't saying, I'm leaving my body now. They're saying it feels as if, which is not quite the same thing. If you stimulated the adjacent portion of the temporal lobe, for example, they would say, it feels as if I'm listening to a symphony now. Now, we don't jump from that to say that symphonies exist only as hallucinations in the brain, that they don't really exist outside of the brain. In fact, what we may be showing by these studies is that there's a part of the brain that may mediate or be involved in our experience of the NDE, or the out-of-body experience. That doesn't mean that that part of the brain is causing the experience. For example, when you eat a piece of apple pie, a certain part of your brain becomes active in appreciating the taste of that. Does that mean the apple pie exists only in your brain? <laughs> it's like trying to understand a television program by taking apart the television set. The program is not in the set. It's being received by the set. It may be the same way with the brain. Now you are stimulating me to ask you about the independence, perhaps, of our consciousness. We're all so interested in that notion. Do you think that it can exist outside our living brain? Well, certainly there are several features in the near-death experience that suggest consciousness can exist independently of the brain. Um, many people in a near-death experiences say, I was outside looking at the body from an outside perspective. We also have people saying that when their brain was anesthetized or otherwise seriously impaired physiologically, that their thoughts were clearer and faster than ever. So these features of near-death experiences suggest that the brain is more of a receiver or a filter of the mind rather than the producer of the mind. You talk about how people who have near-death experiences sometimes come away with a renewed positive outlook on life. I've seen the same sort of thing when people have scary illnesses and embrace spirituality. Right. Well, it's certainly true that for many people, adversity can deepen spirituality. But there are some ways in which having a near-death experience changes you in different ways from a close brush with death without a near-death experience. And one way is in this sense of risk-taking, of being more adventuresome. You know, most people who come close to death and don't have a near-death experience, they certainly value life more, but that tends to make them often more conservative, more cautious, whereas the near-death experience becomes often less cautious, more willing to take risks, because they're not afraid of dying. They certainly value life more, but they're not afraid of losing it because they don't think that's the end. Remind me, tell me how you began with all this. Well, I, I'd always been interested in unusual experiences, and being trained as a psychiatrist, I dealt every day with people's unusual experiences and tried to fit them into the neat materialistic box that we use in medical school. And there were some things that just didn't fit well into the box. So we sort of put those aside and said, someday we'll understand those. And then when I first joined the faculty at the University of Virginia in 1976, 
we had a, a resident start his psychiatric training um, under my care uh, named Raymond Moody. He had basically heard about these experiences and started asking his patients as a medical student and quickly found 150 cases and wrote this, this book. And maybe a month later, Raymond came to me with a large cardboard box full of letters. And he said, essentially, this is the mail I've gotten this week. And I started looking at these letters, and they were all from people who wrote to him saying, good Lord, I'm not the only person this ever happened to. And one after another was telling of these elaborate experiences they had had, sometimes decades before that they hadn't been able to tell anyone about. And since Raymond was in his residency at the time, he said to me, I don't have time to deal with these. Do you want to do something with them? And the more I read, the more I realized I I can't put these down. There's something going on here that we need to understand. I wonder how much better you understand it now. Do you just know about more cases, or do you understand it better? I I wonder that same thing, because I I am not a believer by temperament. I tend to be a skeptic. So I look at these experiences, and I talk to the experiences themselves, and they say things to me like, why do you need to try to understand this scientifically? It's a gift given to us. Just appreciate it. And I can't do that as a scientist. I need to understand it. Do you get a lot of grief from mainstream scientists? Do you get ridiculed? Um, I do get some grief. You know, scientists are just like everybody else. You know, they have their beliefs, their prejudices. And many scientists think this is fascinating work, and they're very glad I'm doing it. And others feel it's a waste of time. But it used to be that when we would talk about this, for example, at the American Medical Association conferences, people would come up to me and say in private, well, I had an experience just like this. A doctor? Yes. And now there's been so much publicity about it that in the question and answer period in front of the whole audience, they're more willing to say, I had one of these experiences also. What about you? Where has it left you? The major thing I come away with is a profound appreciation and respect for the power of this experience. Did you have a strong religious faith when you went into this in 75? I did not. I had um, virtually no religious faith going into this research and I really can't say that I've changed a whole lot in that regard. I say, I say I'm much more open to things now. I can say from my research in this field that I don't think the material world is all that there is. I think there is something else. But I can't say that I believe that. That's just where the evidence seems to be taking me. Do you, are you more inclined to think that there is a hellish non-material world? Uh, that's something I really don't want to believe. Yeah, neither do I. (laughs) I And I can feel my personal prejudice trying to push me away from from that. But having given that warning, um, I do think that most of the people who tell me about hellish near-death experiences have physiological reasons why their brain might have made them have that type of experience. For example, the feeling of being in a black, featureless void for eternity Most of the people I've heard that from have been people who have been under anesthesia. In the course of the years you've been doing this, have you lost anyone that you are close to? Because I'm wondering if it changed your view of their death. I have lost family members since I've started doing this this work. Um, I don't feel like I know what happens to them when they die. But I think it has, in some subtle way, made it easier for me to grieve uh, because it's made me more comfortable with the fact that there are a lot of unknowns that we just have to live with. 
And that's okay. That's just the way it is. People who have had near-death experiences still grieve their loved ones when they they leave them. Um, Even though you may feel like you know what's going to happen after death, the separation is still painful. You're still losing somebody. And that grief doesn't go away. Did you lose anyone close to you? Yes, I've, I've lost my father uh, since I started doing this work. Um, and a couple of years ago, I lost my brother-in-law. And I, I don't know that doing this work has changed the way I've dealt with those losses. I think it's made me more accepting of whatever happens. I don't feel that I know that these loved ones are in a better place now. I'm open to the possibility, but I don't think it affects how I lead my life. What did your father think of this line of inquiry of yours? My father was a hardcore scientist, a hardcore materialist, who thought that not only this research was total nonsense, but he thought all of psychiatry was total nonsense. (laughs) What kind of scientist was he? He was a chemist, a basic scientist. And he thought that the material world was all that is, there is, and he didn't even think there was such a thing as an unconscious. And we had arguments about those things. It certainly helped me keep a skeptical attitude towards all these things, because I I see everything from the way my father would have seen them, and that's, in fact, the way I grew up. We tend not to believe anything on faith. We tend to try to test things out. Whenever we believe things, it's a tentative belief until it's tested. Bruce Grayson, thank you for sharing your insights on the near-death experience on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. Love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. They'll follow you into the dark, no blinding light. Or tunnels to gates of white Just our hands clasped so tight Waiting for the hint of a spark If heaven and hell decide That they both are satisfied Illuminate the nose On their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you When your soul embarks I'll follow you into the dark. Bruce Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark And I'll follow you into the dark